you have your Bibles with you, if you want to turn with me, please, to Psalm 73. A psalm, it says a psalm of Asaph. Um, Asaph was, well, as far as we know, a worship leader, for want of another term, a worship leader in the court of King David. And this is one of the psalms attributed to him. It, I think it's one of my sort of favorite psalms. As with many of the psalms, that they're, they're popular because we can identify with them. And they speak to us of our experience. And I think that's why they are such a favorite portion of scripture for people. It's a psalm which is bookended. Um, verse 2, he says, but as for me, and then at the end of the psalm, the very final verse, he says, but as for me as well. At the start, it's but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. But by the time we get to the end of the psalm, it's but as for me, it is good to be near God. So the psalmist obviously goes on a journey in this psalm. It's a psalm in which he moves from, he feels a sense of slipping in terms of his faith and his trust in God and ends up in a place of confidence and trust being near God. And it's a journey that probably all of us will have to make at some point in our life, whether it's in the past or now or in the future. And so it's an important psalm for us to read, and it's here in the Scripture so that we can learn and absorb the truth that God has for us and for our lives this morning. Psalm 73. It's a psalm very much in two halves, and I won't, I'm not going to award a gold star later on, but just see if you notice where the turning point is and when things begin to change for the psalmist. Verse 1. Surely or truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity and evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and, and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. And therefore, their people turn to them and drink up the waters in abundance. They say... How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. 
If I had said thus, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. But when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. For my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. And yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. Psalm 73, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to this text, please. The first, probably 14, 15 verses lay out the the psalmist's problem that he is experiencing. Verse 1, he boldly declares, surely or truly, that means this is absolutely true, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Perhaps that would be his creed that week by week as an Orthodox Jew going along to, if you like, church, we'll call it that, week by week, This is something he would utter, maybe especially as the worship leader. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in hearts. That's the creed. God is good to those who are faithful, to those who love him, to those who seek to follow him, to those who seek to obey in their times the Ten Commandments, to those who seek to put God first in their life. God is good to Israel. God is good to his people. But then he moves from, as it were, or Saturday to Sunday, or for us, he moves from Sunday to Monday, and he finds a very different experience. (laughs) And there's a clash in his mind and in his heart between the creed that he believes and the creed that he mouths and his experience in life. (laughs) And then the world around him and in his own experience of life at that time. And as he looks around him, he just knows this isn't, there's something not right here. This doesn't hang together. God is good to Israel, to those who trust in him and believe in him. But then I look around and I see things seem so different. So topsy-turvy, it's not the way it actually is. In verses 3 to 14, we have this big, long, if you like, outburst or complaint. 
And when you read it, 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 we discover it's laced with a sense of bitterness and resentment flowing through it as well. And in our terms, he goes off on one, basically. Oh, come on, guys. So if we sit and we sing about God is good, just look around. Let's get real. What's going on? And he looks outside and he sees the, the word used is shalom of the wicked, the prosperity of the wicked. And he looks at the lives of those who really don't pay any attention to God whatsoever. And yet, they seem to be doing fine. <laughs> they seem to be getting on very well, thank you, without giving a nod or a wink to God. In some senses, it appears as though they're flourishing. And he goes through the whole list. He says they appear to be pretty healthy, they're strong, and their arrogance and self-centeredness, they seem to get exactly what they want. They seem to be able to live however they want. Out with the, they don't seem to be bothering with the constraints of the commandments. Just do whatever I want. The callous, the cruel, they seem to be able to act and plan and do without any comeback at all. They seem to be prospering. Whatever they plan comes to fruition. They're mostly claimed to have they themselves or God. They can do what they like. And far from being judged, they say people actually like this and their values and their lives and whatever they're promoting, it seems to make them even more popular despite how they're behaving. It's lapped up in abundance. And what annoys them even more, in verse 11 he says, they seem to live their life just in complete ignorance of God. And they consider God to be a total irrelevance to what they want to do and how they go about their lives and what they want to achieve. All this talk of judgment, what a lot of nonsense. Old wives tell that. What does God know? Verse 11. That's what the wicked are like. He says, they are always carefree. Or so it appears. <laughs> they increase in wealth. And he cries out in verse 13, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. In vain. He begins to doubt the value of living as one of God's people. What's the point, he says, for all my obedience, for all my faithfulness, and all my service? Look at these guys over there. <laughs> They've not got any of that. They, they, and they're doing well. They're getting by. There's no judgment on their behavior at all. But look at me. All day long, he says, I have been plagued. And I have been punished every morning. And I think that verse highlights what lies beneath and underneath. And is part of the motivation for this outcry from the, the, the psalmist when he goes on about the prosperity of the wicked. I think part of his problem is not so much their prosperity, but in fact his pain 
and his suffering. And whatever his circumstances are, he says, all day long I have been plagued. Things are tough for him. And he finds himself in the middle of a real struggle at this point in time in his life. And he looks at others having it easy. What he imagines that they're having it a lot easier than me. And I'm the Christian. I'm the believer. And look at their lives. They don't have all the troubles and the problems I've got. All the pain, whatever it was he was going through at that time. And he finds himself becoming a bitter old man before he actually gets old. And bitterness begins to, as he mentions, seep into his spirit and a spirit of envy and resentment. He's perplexed and he's confused. How can this be? And it's almost as if he's saying, this really isn't fair. (laughs) It isn't fair. And so his faith and his confidence and trust in God, he feels as though it's slipping. And he's losing his footholds and his trust in God. And we can question it, but I think we all sympathize with this guy. I think it's an experience that we will all find ourselves in at one point or another whether it's in the past or now or in the future, there will be a time, I think, for all of us, if we're human beings, that the questions of God's goodness and fairness come into our mind. Do they not? There's another time in your life when you say, this really isn't fair, God. This seems so unjust (laughs) I don't deserve this. We don't deserve this in our family. It's especially at those times when it comes knocking on our door, as it were. Struggles or suffering. You might wonder why the psalm is bothered because these things have been happening for centuries. You know, wicked people prospering and getting away with it. But it's because he's now... (laughs) in trouble, that the question becomes a bit more pointed. And one writer says, if we're honest, we need to admit that for most of us, innocent suffering remains purely an academical problem, academic problem, sorry, until we become the suffering innocent. Innocent suffering happens every day throughout the world. It doesn't really bother us until it comes chapping at the door of our lives or the lives of our families. And then it becomes a real question. And then it becomes a heart of who we are. Can we continue to really trust God? Believe that God is good when we find ourselves in circumstances that seem, in our mind, so unjust. And we begin to wonder, is this all a waste of time? Trusting God, believing, going to church, serving him. Is it worth it? Or has it all been in vain? I'm sure we all know the temptations then for our own faith and our confidence in God to become a real struggle. It's difficult to hold on. And we find, you know, 
We can't really work our way through it, as he says in verse 16. We also maybe find ourselves isolated, and we wonder, we can't really express this. I'm glad the psalmist did. He says in verse 15, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. It's almost as if I can't actually let people know how I'm really feeling, because what would they think? Would I disturb their faith? And so he's struggling, and he's stuck. Then we read verse 17. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. I hope you noticed that. I, don't, I won't ask you to put your hand up and say you did notice that. I was reading that this was the turning point. This is the hinge. This is the pivot. Whatever term you want to use, the whole psalm spins on that line till I entered the sanctuary of God. And the psalmist here, of course, is not talking about coming into simply a building. He's talking about, especially as Asaph, the worship leader, coming in to worship with God's people. And it's as he comes in to worship that Asaph begins this journey again from slipping and sliding to finding a real grip and a sure foot for his faith. He gets a new perspective on God, his life, and what's happening around him. And perspective is really important. Really important. I found this little story, and I'll be honest, I don't know if it's true. It's an illustration. So. But it, is, it does mention a man, Thomas Wheeler, so we might be able to Google him later. He was the CEO of the Massachusetts Life Insurance Company. A man with a big job, big pay. And he was driving along the interstate with his wife and they were running low on, they called gas, petrol. And he stopped at this little run-down gas station. You know the ones you see in the movies sometimes with the wind blowing and the sign blowing in the wind and the dust everywhere. And he stops in and the attendant comes out and he asks the attendant to fill the car and would you check the oil as well? And, and he says, I'm going to go and stretch my legs. And he goes a wee walk. And as he comes back towards the car, he noticed that his wife and the attendant were actually quite close and having a very animated conversation. And as he approached them, the conversation ended. He paid for the gas, got back in the car. And as he was about to drive off, the attendant was at the side of the car, waving to his wife and saying, it was great to talk to you. And as he drove away, um, Thomas Wheeler said to her, did, did you know that guy? And she says, well, actually, he was in my high school and we actually dated for about a year or so. And, and Thomas Wheeler just said, boy, were you lucky that I came along. <laughs> if you'd married him, you'd be the wife of a gas station attendant instead of the wife of a CEO. And you know what's coming. My dear... His wife replied, if I'd married him, he'd be the CEO and you'd be the gas station attendant. So, perspective is everything, isn't it? Perspective is everything. And we come to worship in order to get a fresh perspective. That's what happened in the psalmist's life. And he began to see who God was, and who he was in relation to God, and he began to see things clearer. It's as if his specs had all been all misted up before. 
outside and he comes in and they're white clean and he begins to see things much more clear. And that's why we come to church. That's why it's important to be in church. I don't know how the psalmist got through the door. He sounded as though he was having a rotten time, but he was there. Maybe out of habit. Maybe out of a sense of duty because he was a worship leader and he had things to do. But he was there. And in doing so, he gave God the opportunity to reveal himself into his life. And I'm glad you're here this morning. And I hope you're here joyfully and delighted to be here. But maybe we're here and we didn't feel like coming this morning. I don't know. Maybe you're here just simply out of habit. This is where I go every Sunday. Not, I'm going to go. Maybe you're here because you have to bring the children. I, I don't know. But I'm glad you're here. Because when we enter the sanctuary of God, when we come with God's people into God's presence, we put ourselves in the position to meet with God and to have our vision lifted away from ourselves and up to the living God. To see him, who he is, and to see who we are in the light of his love and his grace. And the psalmist gained this new perspective, didn't he? New perspective on the wicked or those who live their lives without God. It's there. The fate and their destiny is spelled out. Verses 17 right through to verses 20. And he discovers, far from him slipping, they're the ones that are on this, if you want to call it a slippery slope. That's the way he describes it. And their prosperity is precarious and short-lived and has nothing of eternal value to it. He describes it like a dream, it's like a, a nightmare. You know when you have a nightmare or you have a fantasy and you wake up and it's in your mind and you're sweating and you suddenly realise, oh boy, that was just a dream. Oof, thank goodness. And you turn over and it's gone. That's the way, that's the picture the psalmist uses of how God considers the fate of those who live without him. For those who live simply for this world, that's all there is, says the psalmist. There's nothing of eternal value left. They come and they go like that. But as well as that, of course, much more positively, he gets a wonderful, fresh perspective on his own life. He says, yet, at the start of verse 23, in spite of his sense of being embittered, in spite of him feeling as though he's just been a brute beast and unthinking, in spite of the envy in his mind, in spite of the questions he's got, in spite of the pain he's experiencing, in spite of the confusion and perhaps the anger at what's happening in his life, yet I am always with you and you hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. That's the perspective he discovers that in all that's happening in his life, in all that he's going through, the good, the bad, and the ugly as well, he remembers and is reminded that he's a child of God, held in the unfailing grace of the living God. One commentator, the Kidner 
kindly <laughs> highlights this verse and says, there's a three-point sermon here. The psalmist discovers himself to be grasped, to be guided, and has the promise to be glorified. He discovers, and amidst all his questioning and confusion, he says, I am always with you. God is with him, holding him by his right hand, leading him, guiding him, not just through this life, but holding right through to glory and into eternity. The grace of God unfailingly surrounding him. And so also for you and I, when we come to worship, we come into God's presence. Isn't this a wonderful thing for us to grasp again? That who God is and who we are in relationship to God, that no matter how we come into church and what's happening in our lives and all the different things that can be going on, we discover again that we're still a child of God. That he's still with you. And he holds you. And it's just that image that was with me during the week. Holds you by your right hand. That's a picture. It's not an unusual picture in the, New Test in the Old Testament. It's given again and again. A picture of God holding us by our right hand. It's a picture of help, security. Lynn was talking with the children, and I still remember walking down towards the River Clyde with our grandchildren. And I still remember holding on to their hand when it was snowy and icy. It must have, it must have been last year or the year before. You know what happens. And they get a bit gallus, and they, and they think, and you're saying, take your time, take your time. And then they start to, well, they start to make a bolt for it. And of course, if it's icy or snowy, the feet go and they begin to slip. And what happens? What do I do? Let them go. I'll teach you a lesson. I told you not to run. There you go. What happens is my grip tightens. When I feel them beginning to fall, beginning to slip, I don't let them go. My grip tightens to make sure they don't fall. And if they do happen to fall, I'm there to lift them up once again. And that's the, the image I had this week of, of God in my life. And maybe for you this morning, it's that image, just quite simply, of the one who says, I am with you always, and I will hold you with my right hand. And if you're struggling, and if you're feeling that your faith in me is slipping, and if you feel you're sliding, and you're on the verge of falling over, and you're struggling to understand what's happening, Maybe you feel your grip on me is slackening. But let me assure you that my grip on you is tightening to make sure that you're able to stand again. The psalmist discovered that. And he discovered that that was enough. <laughs> that was enough. He didn't get an academic answer. To what was going on in his life. There's theology in the psalm, but the psalmist didn't get the theological explanation why good people suffer and why evil people prosper. He didn't get that. What he got was a reassurance that God is with him, 
that God would never let him go. He didn't get the, the answer to the question, why has this happened? But how am I going to live in this where I am right now? How am I going to go forward? How am I going to remain strong? How am I going to hold on in my faith? And the answer he got, as Lynn said, was the promise of the presence of God. And sometimes presence is what we need. A young child's lying crying in, in bed, and you don't go in and go, go to sleep. You go in and you go over and you pat their back and they know you're there. You know, you know they're there. And that brings the peace and the confidence and the security. And it's enough for the psalm. He says, look, there's nothing else I need. I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion for now. Everything else will fail. We know that. I, think I went to the physio <laughs> last week for the first time ever of going to a physio. I've had some problems down my back and my legs. I think it's sciatic nerve. And I went to the physio and he gave me an examination. <laughs> and you know, I've been to a physio and he's twisting me and turning me. He's telling me my pelvis is not aligned or something. And then, of course, my, my hamstrings are far too tight and my glutes, the top of my buttocks, were tight as anything. And this was causing things to pinch in my nerves. And then he moved up to my shoulders. And he goes, you know, as you get older, and see if he said that more than once. He must have said it about... 20 times, as you, and your pecs are coming in the way, but as you get older, and my posture's not great anyway, he says, but as you get older, your posture, you know, and I felt like, I came out, felt totally, well, it was painful because he'd hurt me, but just as you get older, I felt, it's going, it's done. <laughs> but we know that, don't we? Our flesh and our heart, not may fail, will fail, eventually. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Not just in this life, but on into eternity. This psalm, the psalmist starts wondering about the goodness of God. What does that actually mean? And by the end of the psalm, I think he's actually learned what the goodness of God ultimately is. Is the goodness of God found in the prosperity of the wicked? and their health, and their strength, and their wealth, and their, their reputation, and their progress, and the achieving of all their plans. Is that what the goodness of God's all about? He learned that the goodness of God is, is not denied by the affliction of, the, of the, the righteous either. What he learned was the goodness of God is found in God, and in God alone. Not just in the blessings that God gives us at times, but in God himself. His heart's desire, his satisfaction, his desire for the good life will only be found as and when we find ourselves near to God and we make him a refuge and our strength. That was his journey. That was his testimony. And I hope and pray for all of us this morning that this would be our testimony and our witness. As for me, it is good 
to be near God. And that's enough. Okay. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, we thank you for your living word, which is alive and through your spirit ministers to us. We thank you, Lord, for what was written in that psalm, written for our encouragement. And so, Lord, as we go into the week that lies ahead, whatever we may go into, may we go forward with a trust. May we have a settled assurance in our hearts that comes with the knowledge that you are with us always and our lives are in your hand and no one can snatch us out of your hand once we belong to you. We thank you that you promise day by day to lead us, to guide us. And you assure us that nothing can separate us from your love. Father, help us to truly drink in these truths and take them to heart. As we go into a world that seeks to so often pull us away from our faith and, and cause us to stumble and to slip, may we know you as our unfailing strength, as our refuge. May we know you as an ever-present help in our daily lives. Help us to appreciate again that when all is said and done, that our heart's desire and our ultimate satisfaction is not to be found in your good gifts, but in the giver of all things. The ultimate good for us is to be found near you. Help us, Lord, in the days that lie ahead, to live and to know this truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.